Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. I'm super excited for our guest today. He's coming in from halfway across the globe. Uh, He's a rock and roll roadie turned entrepreneur, works with executives and speakers around the world to help them deliver unforgivable presentations. He's the founder of the presentation powerhouse Missing Link, as well as a co-founder of 21 Tanks, Human Rights, and the Sales Department. Please welcome Rich Maholland. Thanks so much for having me. And I love that you said unforgivable presentations. It's like, it's a, it's a new spin on, on it. Presentation's so good, you have to ask for forgiveness. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well done. Well done catching my words. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was amazing. Thanks so much for well, having me. There's your new tagline. <laughs> Absolutely. Take well, it. Awesome. Uh, well, this podcast is about leadership. And my favorite question to ask my guests is, Rich, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. <laughs> uh, I think there are a lot. Uh, so um, probably my, I guess the one that immediately resonates with me the most is, and I get very, very frustrated with this. It's like an idea I want to go to war with, is people always turn around and say, great leaders listen. It's such a meme. You know, how do you be mm-hmm. a great uh, leader? Learn to listen. And I understand that to a degree, but after you listen, you have to lead loud. You know, you've got to use your voice. And for some reason, we've gone to, like the world is trying to stop leaders from having a voice uh, as if that our job is just to aggregate the opinions of others, but it's not. By all means, we need to take into account and consideration and counsel other people's ideas. But to me, uh, the difference between a leader and a manager is their ability to communicate. So if you want to lead, you actually have to lead with your voice. It's, it's what happens at the other side of listening. And I think that it's problematic that everybody's saying, you know, great leaders listen, because I found that a lot of leaders are now sitting back and not wanting to share their ideas. That's really in- insightful, Rich. Do you have um, in your journey some examples of, of when you've caught yourself sort of listening too much and not using your voice to tell the story or, or create action? Yeah. So there's one very specific time. So um, as, as you know, I'm a member of an organization called EO and I was the uh, president of the Johannesburg chapter. Now, all of a sudden, instead of being, it's a, it's a weird thing because everybody else on my board of directors is a business owner. So instead of being the person that people look to for the answers, I was surrounded by this board that I would never be able to like, you know, employ in my own business. I'd have to have a uh, a billion dollar business to you know to get this level of people. And so I thought the last thing I want to be is this public speaker guy. That's who they knew me as, a person who owns a presentation company and who travels around the world speaking. So I thought I want to demonstrate a different type of leadership, leadership without authority, because obviously mm-hmm. I didn't have authority with them. So I decided and I made it a, a, a mental note to lead from the seat. I thought I'm used to in my business that when there's a point, when it comes up to it, I stand up and I, I kind of lead from the front. And I thought, try do something differently. And I sat and I listened. And I was very, very much like that listening leader. And for the entire year, I sat down and I just kind of, and I didn't want to argue with people. I didn't want to dominate with my voice and with my ideas. And uh, at the end of the year, I felt, I, I remember the, the day I handed over to a guy called Ross Drakes, who was taking over after me. 
And it was a Saturday morning and my wife walked in and, and I just felt like a complete and utter failure. I felt like I didn't move the needle of the organization at all. And I had such big victory conditions about what I wanted to do. And yeah, I was just, my, I was saying to, to Jazz, like, I feel, I feel like I've not done anything and it was terrible. And I just kind of let people walk all over me for the whole year because I behaved in a way that I wasn't used to. And she kind of said to me, well, you know what, just, you know, you always say that everything's a lesson, just, you know, write down your notes. And, and the main note that I realized was that um, I, I should have led. I should have led from the front. Mm -hmm. uh, people joined my board because they wanted to work under a leader like me for that period of time. And I actually failed them as much as I failed the organization by not uh, being this charismatic leader for the year. And it was a massive lesson for me. And I decided never again. I can only be the best version of myself, and that's what I'm going to go with. That's that's really insightful. Um, you know, I just finished my term and had a similar experience in which, like, a lot of the times I led from the front, but a lot of the times I led from the back. And I think I I have regrets now of not having a louder voice or being more present. Um, talk to us about how you work with other entrepreneurs to to help them find their voice in those situations like what's you know we've probably got an audience member thinking about hey am i really in front of the room or am i leading from the seat what are some indicators that they might be too far in the back row versus in front of the room where they where they should be leading from well the question is how often they communicate so a, a lot of us mm. make ourselves smarter we, we've started a project called atomic talks which is i i turn business books that you've read into presentations that you can deliver. And it's 100% free. It's like you just download the deck, we give you a training video, and it's, you know, grit or predictably irrational or different great books you've read, extreme ownership, whatever the case may be, is we give you uh, summaries that you can deliver to your team. Because what I found was a lot of business leaders, they, 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 they put a lot more value in what they put into their head. And that they forget that the only way to lead is to get it out of their head as well. So it's not enough for you as a leader to read a book. Then you're only making yourself better. You need to, if you want to be a great leader, you have to take what's inside your head and share it with the people around you. And so when I see leaders who are not doing that, who are, who are hell-bent on making themselves smarter, not their team smarter, I think that's problematic. And that's actually why we created this. You know, obviously... We hope that people will see it, do it, and then you know want to deal with us more. But it's not a bait and switch. It's an absolute free project just to try and get leaders to speak up more. You, you touched on frequency of communication. Do you have a, a rule of thumb for a leader of how often they should be communicating, what the message should be, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I believe that to a degree. I mean, so I have a ask me anything session with the team every two weeks uh, where I share my ideas and things like that. I also, I mean, we engage quite a lot. So we do a talk teardown where we break down another public speaker's talk and, you know, I'll share my thoughts and ideas around that. And that is very much of a collaborative. I, I try and listen to everybody first and then at the end, uh, share my ideas. And we do that on a weekly basis. But I do believe that, you know, if you've not shared your thoughts and ideas uh, with your team every two to three weeks at the, the mm. very, very, you know, at the most every month, I think you're not leading. I think you're managing. Uh, you're managing resources and things and people and time. If you're leading, you have to lead. You have to share your vision uh, with people to get them to be like, yes, this makes sense and, and to make them smarter. Certainly. 
So, so shifting gears back to the initial question, Rich, um, any other misconceptions come to mind? Okay, so the one is, uh, I mean, there's a few more. The one, the one is less of a misconception and more of a a, a legacy thinking. Uh, so the first book I wrote is called Legacide, and it's why legacy thinking is the killer of innovation. Mm. And one of the big legacy tools that we have as leaders is strategy, and I think it's problematic. I think strategy in the in the in the way that we use it today was a, a technology stolen from the military to solve a problem in the you know, 1970s. Uh, Michael Porter and co, they developed this, they took this, they adapted it, and it made sense because your business in 1980 was going to look incredibly like your business in 1970. But now if I ask a business person, you know, what does your business look like in 2025? How does the the industry in which you play look in 2025, they don't have the answer. So we have a different model. We run these victory condition labs with companies. And we we talk about, it's not about creating a strategy so much as a strategic destination. A strategy tells uh, people how, how to move, where, you know, how they, what steps they have to take. Whereas a strategic destination tells autonomous smart individuals where they have to be by when. So I believe that in the world we live in right now, where people want to be more autonomous, a leader's job is not to tell people what to do. It's to tell them where to be by when, have a strategic destination. And that is the the latest form of leadership. Because what it does is it gives people a victory condition and agency. And if you want to give people true leadership, you have to give them some degree of agency, tell them what winning looks like, and then ask their opinions on how they think they can contribute to that victory. So I think that old command and control model of leadership is broken. When I say you have to speak to your people, and you know, I mean that you have to share a vision and an idea of the future that they want to be part of. Once they want to be part of it, they will drive themselves towards it. And if they're not doing that, obviously you've hired the wrong people. I, I love the, the concept of victory conditions um, and strategic destination. Can you go a little deeper on the differences between those two, do you need one before the other? Do they work hand in hand? So for me, the, those two terms are particularly interchangeable. Uh, strategic mm. destination versus a victory condition. The reason why I sometimes use the term strategic destination. So we were running a, a lab, a strategy lab for a company last week, a very, very big listed company. And that board of directors, they're used to dealing with the term strategy. So victory condition might just be one step too far for them to understand. And while I did use that language, I always, and it's, it, this is just a, a worthwhile thing for leaders to remember. When you're communicating to people, you want to start in a common place. So something they're comfortable with. So it is easier for them to say, you need to move from a command and control strategy to a, a strategic destination. It still has enough of strategy in the title for it to make sense. Mm. But ultimately, it's just a victory condition. And if, if you don't mind, if I can go two minutes on where this came from, that might be helpful. Please. <clears throat> so um, I'm an avid board gamer. I'm obsessed with board games. Uh, I, in fact, one of the funny side effects of the pandemic was I thought I've got over a thousand games at home. I thought it would be amazing. I'm in lockdown. I'll play more games than ever. I'll you know, game my face off. But actually, one of the weirdest side effects was that I ended up playing less games. And I realized, oh, it was never about the board games. It was always about solving problems. 
I think humans and entrepreneurs specifically are problem-solving machines. We like to go out there and solve meaningful problems. And when my business was in cruise control, I never got excited because my business didn't have meaningful problems to solve. My life was good. The staff was good. We were a good enough business in many ways. We were kind of on an okay plateau. And during the pandemic, I ended up not playing games because my business had so many meaningful problems to solve that I was forced into there. But for years, what I realized is if I wanted to explain a game to you, the first thing I would do before I explained to you any rules, and I, I learned this the hard way, if I tried to explain the rules of the game to you, I could see that uh, you're completely lost. It sounds very, very complex. However, if on the flip side, I first said to you, all right, great, we're going to play this game here now. Okay, it's called Pax Premier. And, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'll take you through. And at the end of the game, the, the person with the most influence points wins. How you have influence points is siding by the, the team that has uh, the most influence at the point of scoring, whatever. And you now understand this. I say, let me explain to you how you side with those teams, how you um, place your allegiance with the influential parties. And then I explain to you the rules of the game. Now, when I explain to you rules that way, Every single rule I tell you from this point is logically measured against how that will get you closer to X, because that's how human beings naturally like to think. We like to think, and I know where I want to be. How will what you're telling me help me get there? So if, however, uh, I was to decide to change the rules, uh, you, the victory condition would be the same. And what we discovered, uh, and we discovered this by playing games with you know, large corporations, is that if I change the victory condition, they would change the decisions. And, you know, if you play a game that has a different way of winning, you'll make different decisions, even a simple game like Monopoly. If I said to you, go around the board three times and at the end of the game, uh, that will trigger the end game. And then whoever's got the most, uh, you know, of one color will win the game. You know, if I asked you if you'd make a different decision, you'd say yes. Mm -hmm. And that was all the, always the answer. So what we discovered is the victory condition that dictates your action more than the rules. Now, in many ways, strategy is a rule are the rules. This is what we want to do and why. Whereas the victory condition is the strategic destination. And so I would always get these boards of directors to agree to this or, or executive committees and things. And then they would, I would say to them, okay, so they would agree with that premise. And then I would ask them, do me a favor, uh, write down what you think the victory condition of this organization is in the next 12 months. And of course, every single time, if we asked 10 people, we'd get eight different answers. So they were confusing moving forwards with moving towards. And we believe that it was very, very important as a leader to get your people to move towards something more than just moving forwards, because forwards could be away from the goal, but still making progress. And so that's a long explanation of how we frame victory condition design. You know, that's really helpful, Rich. And where my mind was going when you were explaining that was by taking it from the victory conditioning and bringing it forward to the rules it allows you to approach the rules differently, right? It almost allows you to question what are the rules, like what rules are we living by for this victory condition that we're trying to accomplish? One of the, one of the core ideas I mentioned earlier, legacy, this idea of legacy thinking. And one of the problems with businesses is they, once somebody, if I as the business owner puts in an idea. So during the pandemic, we launched a business called Cloud Crew, where we helped people present online. And of course, that was a massive thing. And actually, we ended up having our best revenue ever, best revenue month in, you know, at the time, 23 years during the pandemic. But the next year, that business unit was starting to slow down. But nobody in my team wanted to necessarily say to me, hey, bro, this isn't working. 
And what I said to them is, you know, you're not saying that I was wrong. You're saying that I was no longer right. And how do we measure that? So if we have a clear victory condition, all we've got to look at is any decision is, is this, will this help us get closer to X? Or is this still the best way to get closer to X? So the previous rule in play was uh, to go out and to sell our corporate international clients on online events. And that rule was absolutely true during the pandemic. But as people started, as the floodgates opened, actually the last thing people wanted at that time, I think we'll get back there in some ways, but all the, the last thing they wanted, you know, mid, come mid 2022 or 2021 was to be, you know, back on a webinar. All of a sudden, it no longer made sense. And so the line is always to, to give your, your team permission to say, and in fact, mm. once, you, once you give them this language framing, it changes everything. You're not saying that I was wrong. You're saying that I am no longer right. And that gives them that nobody's offended. And, and so these are the kind of rule changes that can happen when you have a clearly defined victory condition, because there's always something to measure against. And the idea is, the, the, the great metaphor would be, you know, if the rules of the game were the, the directions Google Maps gave you to get to the airport, if you, if you hit traffic, uh, it wouldn't just make you sit in the traffic. It knew you had to be at the airport by a certain time. It would redirect you. And so that's what you have to give your people to do is to redirect themselves. Mm. And the course correction is so, it's very, very easy when you have a destination, but it's extremely, extremely difficult if you don't have a destination. And most strategies are route maps as opposed to a destination points. You know, I, I love the, you're no longer right framework because to your point, it does take the finger pointing the accusations, all those things sort of out of your wrong. Um, you know, we're at the, the end of a year. People are starting to think about their goals for 2023, new destinations. Um, walk us through sort of how a leader should be thinking about their strategic plan for the next 12 months or their destiny. Like, is it something that you're doing on an annual basis or is this an ongoing exercise that every Monday you should have <laughs> Yeah. your own vision session? Uh, no. So for me, it's, a, it's somewhat, it's an annual thing. We, we, and we'll review them. And it's not your BHAG. So there's kind of two rules for this. This isn't your BHAG, but your victory condition will play towards it. And I'm going to hang up Simon Sinek's infinite game. Well, actually, let's, let's be honest, James Cross's infinite game. Sinek kind of talks about business being an, an infinite game. And I think, he's, I think he's correct, but it's unhelpful. So I'm going to hang that up for a second. Uh, we we work on. Have you ever had the Howard Mann on the show? No, not yet. He wrote yeah. the Business Brickyard and FYP and stuff. I, I'd highly recommend it. But one of his core principles is that if you're not running a listed company, you're doing yourself a disservice by working in a 12 month year cycle. You're playing a game based on you know somebody who has shareholder returns to put forward. If you own your own business, you know you can think with a broader lens. And he talks about this concept called a 36-month year. Mm -hmm. And so as a business, we try to think that way. So first of all, we think that um, in 36 months, we want to be here. So that is a kind of medium-term strategic de destination. But what that does is it freezes up uh, to never worry about, and this is kind of golden rule number one, a financial milestone, a number is not a victory condition. It is the mm -hmm. least boring. In fact, nothing will cripple your business more than a financial target. 
This is a massive thing that happened with this firm we were working with last week. They all want to make changes, but they can't make the changes they want to make because in six months, they have to present a certain financial return. Now, the least interesting thing you can do in your business is have a financial target because the only real way to, 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 there's only kind of three things you can do to influence that. The one is cut costs, the, if it's a, a, a you know, net profit-based thing. The other is to uh, sell more and the other is to market better. So if what happens if that became a 36-month target? So at the end of the 36-month year, you have a financial goal. Well, all of a sudden, you have breathing room and you can say, well, in year one, what happens if, if we want to change our entire business and do X so we're completely ready for Y? Then you have some space. So for me, I always want the, finance, the, the results to be the behavior we have to make where the financial result we want will become a natural progression. So that will be the result of us doing X. So uh, the financial target should never be the goal. It should always be the reward for achieving the goal. Because when you think that way, you can change everything. So, for example, for us this year, our financial, our, our victory condition was, in fact, I took finances off the table because I knew if we were chasing turnover, we wouldn't get there. And our victory condition by March next year is to be 40% of our revenue international. And so that means we've got to change the entire way our business thinks in order to uh, be an international business. We started charging in dollars. We, you know, we've really, really changed the way we, we think as an organization. But the only way the team was able to do that if I allowed them to take the accelerator off the revenue thing for a while. That's helpful. It's very helpful. Um, Rich, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to dig into your background and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Like, Talk to us about being a roadie. Give us some <laughs> of your journey. So I was kind of a little bit lost. I knew I wanted to start a sales business. I, I, I'd always wanted to be in sales. That's what I kind of figured I was good at. And I've always been selling things, but I was a bit, little bit lost. I was you know, selling uh, all kinds of different things, these little multi-level marketing investments and color photocopy, color adverts, like a, a yellow pages in full color. That was the innovation. And uh, a band called Depeche Mode came to South Africa. And I loved Depeche Mode. I was absolutely obsessed with them during my teenage years. And my dad used to work in staging. And I went to him, I said, dad, I'll, I'll lick the stage clean for free. Just get me work on it. So both my dad and my sister are sound engineers, and my dad arranged to get me a job as a stagehand. That's basically the kind of lowest of the low. And he walked me into the arena, and there was like a choice. I remember exactly where we were standing, and it was kind of a turn right or turn left. Go towards the monitor desk or go towards the dimmer racks, the lighting. And he said, so do you want to go to the sound guys? And the week before, I'd seen another band's concert called OMD if you remember OMD, and they'd had these moving lights and I was obsessed with them. And I said, well, actually, I'd like to do lighting. And he said, cool. And he walked me down and he introduced me to the lighting crew. And I became a, a stagehand for the lighting crew. And I was hooked. And you know, the next week I was hired to work on AHA. And the next week I was hired to work on Brian Adams. And then in Brian Adams, I realized, hey, if I give my money, I just wanted to be indispensable to the crew. So I said to the truck driver, I will give you my pay for the day if you let me jump in the truck with you. And then this kind of weird blessing happened. Uh, the truck between Sun City in uh, just out in Bobo Botswana, but just, uh, I guess, in the kind of Johannesburg-y part of the touring of South Africa and Cape Town broke down in the middle of nowhere. And luckily, I was, I was there and I knew what to do and I was able to help repack the truck. 
and get get a hold of the guys. And you know, at the end of that, the owner of the staging company came up to me and offered me a full time job. Hmm. So um, I toured for a number of years, but I'd always said to him, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in the office. And his his take was he was an incredible. He is an incredible man called Offer Lapid, and he said. I'll never hire you to be in the office unless you got experience being on the road. So he said, you got to give me two years. So I toured with bands for two years. I was offered a, a number of international jobs that I didn't really want to take. Uh, I was in a relationship uh, with the lady that became the mother of my kids. And I didn't want to, uh, to go on tour. I knew that. And so, and also I wanted to get off the road. And after two years, I went to him. I'd just been the lighting designer for the Smirnoff International Fashion Awards. And I said to him, Offer, I want to come into the office. And he said, uh, you're wasting your talent. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I'm not sure yet. He said, okay, I'll give you three months. You can go sit in the boardroom. I'll keep you on your same salary. And you've got three months to figure out. What an incredible, incredible human being. I was like 20, just turning 21 at the time. And that's what he gave me. So it was amazing. And then I started a conference division called PSL Conference Services because we were the, the largest staging company essentially in the planet at the time and we didn't have work in winter because South Africans don't go to concerts when it's cold <laughs> which I've always thought is funny because I'm from Scotland like if you didn't go to concerts when it was cold you've got nothing You're never going. and I quickly realized that when I would do these conferences it didn't matter what how good the lighting the sound and the AV was because I was going to these CEOs and saying like I will turn you into a rock star and they're like yes that's what I want and, you know, they were still shit. So that's the long shot of it. The lights were going and everyone was exciting. And then they got to the stage and they were terrible. And I thought, I'm a cure for the wrong disease. And I always say that entrepreneurs, we do one of two things, fix problems or fill gaps, as I mentioned. And I saw that there was a problem. And those presentations were horrific. <laughs> one of my frustrations, one of the lies, I guess, leadership lies, uh, to go to your first question, was we all get told to do what you love. I think that's a complete crock. Nobody does what they love, right? Whatever. Doing what you love is an absolute privilege. For most of us, you just got to do what will make you money. And I think it's far more interesting to find something you hate and change it. And I think that's what entrepreneurs did do. And I saw presentations. I thought they were so bad. It's so horrific that I, I thought there was a gap. So at 22, I started Missing Link. Uh, we're now a 25-year-old presentation company. And I started a presentation company not because I love them, but because I... Uh, hated them so much. And I wish I could stand here right now and tell you that the world has changed, but people are still horrifically bad at presentations. <laughs> I think I think it's so crazy because there's so much at stake when you deliver a presentation. Like We all understand that nothing of significance happens in business uh, without somebody generally presenting something. And yet, if the standard for swimming was the same as the standard for presenting, you would drown. Like the, the acceptable standard for most people, for the human beings who present in their business is so low, it's laughable. Uh, end rant. <laughs> that was my story. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it, Rich. Um, the analogy, I'm a swimmer, right? My wife and I do triathlon and uh, you know, that analogy of drowning is, <laughs> is so accurate and vivid in my brain. <laughs> um, so let's shift gears one more time, Rich. Let's talk about the future, like where are you taking Missing Link? What's your thing? How do people, you know, talk to us about you and your professional speaking and, and how people can get in touch. Give us some, uh, some things that you're working on. All right. Let me try to do this as unselfishly as possible then. Uh, no, don't be, you can be as selfish as you like. 
No, I'd like to be, I mean, I'm going to be a wee bit selfish, but, but I'd like to explain why, why, why I say this. So I believe that one of the unfair advantages that I've always had as a, as a business leader is my ability to communicate, being able to go and stand on the stage and deliver a message. And it employs what we refer to as stage marketing. So every time I stand up there and I'll talk about something, one of the books that I've written or a concept that I feel strongly about, for example, this victory condition idea, and invariably somebody will come up to me as afterwards and say, and I'm not being salesy on the, you know, I'm sharing an idea on the stage. And then somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, can you help my team figure out our victory condition? I say, sure, of course, this is the cost. This is how much it is. And they'll say, no problem. And they'll bring us in. And we do these all over the world. And the reason I'm able to do it is because of this idea of uh, marketing myself by the stage. So a big part of our short-term strategy is just basically to find more stages. In the past, it's always been relatively organic. I've been lucky enough to speak in, I think it's 43 countries now, six continents. It sounds all very good. But we want to speak at higher profile events. So we're not trying to, to find events. We're trying to find human beings in the audience of events. Mm -hmm. And then my job is to speak at events in which they are the audience. And there's an easy hacker on that because often if they're the speaker, they become the audience. So if you can share the stage with the people that you want to hire you, it's a great way of putting yourself out there in their mindset. So we're going very, very hard on stage marketing for uh, the next 12 to 24 months, picking strategic stages around the world where I'll be speaking at to try and spread this idea. And that brings, I guess, to the idea itself. So our company's mission is uh, to help ordinary people deliver extraordinary presentations at scale. So we used to say, change the world one board audience at a time, but it's not enough. I can't train one person and then they get better. It's nice, but it's not enough. So what we want to do, and we've created a, a very robust training methodology. And what we want to do is go over now and train the world's presentation trainers. Our kind of tagline for boredom slayers or presentation training is presentation training for people who hate presentation training. Like everybody in the world has been presentation trained and they're still shit. So it, it can't be that. There's got to be something else to it. And so our, our long-term plan is to find communications companies, trainers, and even inside businesses, and to train up chief presentation officers inside people's companies so that when those companies go to market and those leaders or anybody from a business is pitching or presenting or selling, they'll have an unfair advantage over the people who are not. Because it's amazing to me, right now, everyone has chosen to play a game at a certain level. When it comes to presenting, it's like everybody is tied one arm behind their back. And one, you know, and they're hopping on one leg. And for some reason, the world has decided that that is the way that we're going to play this game. We're all going to be, we completely accept that everybody presenting is the equivalent of having one arm tied behind the back and hopping. And we're saying, well, turns out you don't have to. What if it wasn't a five horse race? What if it was a two horse race? You versus the best of the other four. And so we want to change businesses that way. So that's the long play. The long play is to have a thousand accredited trainers in eight years. Well, fantastic. I do have to ask you this one last question, Rich. Um, what was your most horrific moment on stage while presenting? Uh, I've got a gold, silver, and a bronze. <laughs> the, the bronze was about three weeks ago. The silver, I'm going to tell you briefly, and I'll tell you the gold because I'm still feeling the effects of it. It was a massive, massive mistake. So the silver was, I was speaking at an event and it was for a big banking conference. 
And throughout, what they'd done is every every city we went to, they'd brought in different customers to kind of share their nice stories about the bank. You know, when we worked with you, you gave us this thing and, you know, these nice, beautiful case studies. And so every city, they chose these different people. And then when they introduced me, because I was with that bank, they introduced me as a customer. And so in this one show in Pretoria, uh, the one person who came on stage had been briefed and said they would say a great story, but ended up turning around and lambasting him saying, you turned me down for my loan and you were horrific and nobody cared about me. I think you're all racist and things. It was like really, really horrific. And then he said, and I'm not alone. And he called his cousin up to the stage and then his cousin crapped all over these bankers. They were just sitting there like deers in the headlights. So then, then they go off stage and actually the CEO got them off stage. And then the, the MC comes back on and he says like what he would normally say. And now let's hear from our next customer. And I was like, no, 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 abort. I don't want to be a customer anymore. They hate the customer. Don't do that. And then they introduced me and I got on stage. And actually halfway through that talk, I said, guys, this is unacceptable. You're being so hostile to me because of what happened before you, but that can't fly. Because if, if I walked into your office and the customer before me was horrific, you still have to show up and give me a great experience. In my family, we talk about UPA. We always got to have UPA, unconditional positive attitude. And like that's, anyway, so that was number two. That was the silver. The gold was, I was asked years ago in 2011 to train the TED Fellows speakers on behalf of TED for the main stage. And so we flew over to Edinburgh. That's where TED Global was. We flew over to Edinburgh and I was doing training and I did my main training with the TED Fellows and it went swimmingly, brilliant, brilliant, amazing. They were all, oh, it was incredible. And then they asked me to do another session with the, the TED Senior Fellows. They didn't need presentation training, something else. So I, I pulled out this deck that I had on Legacide. But in it at the time, I had this, this one slide that has two ladies. I, the, the slide says... So embarrassed to say this now. The slides um, said you will not be put out of business by a better business, but by a better business model, which is an idea I still believe in. Right. So you're not going to be attacked by a better business, but by a better business model. And then I, I had a little arrow pointing up to these two women uh, oil wrestling, and it said uh, uh, business models, and then it said um, gratuitous image of two women wrestling. You're welcome. And I did this in a, to a presentation of TED Fellows, people who are activists trying to change the world. Now, at that time in 2011, we certainly weren't in the world that we're in right now. You know, it was, people were still relatively inappropriate. And especially in a South African context, we had an audience that, that was a, a crowd pleaser every time. Men and women loved that thing. But I didn't stop to consider who I was presenting to. And in the middle of the talk, Tom from TED stood up and walked around to every single member of the audience and vocally apologized to them for what I'd just done out loud. I'm so sorry about that. I'm really, really sorry. Actually, some of the, the people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that was an overreaction. You were, you were fine. He didn't have to apologize like that. We understood the joke. It was a bit arbitrary, but we got it. But actually on reflection, um, I owe him an apology. Uh, I was absolutely wrong. It was a complete and utter misstep. And I deserve to be as humiliated as I was. And one of the biggest opportunities of our career, being asked to be the official trainers for TED, was a one-year gig as a result of it. I didn't take the time to stop and consider. And it's not even about knowing your audience. That just never should have been okay. And luckily, you know, 48-year-old me is smarter than 37-year-old me, and, and I've grown as a result of it.
So Interesting. I guess there's something to take from it, but that was the worst stage moment of my life. Wow. I can feel it. My palms are sweating just imagining you in that situation. I do have to imagine though, with being on enough stages, something like that is going to happen to every leader, every communication effort. It, it like Doesn't the odds kind of point the, their finger at you're going to have one of those moments and just embrace it, right? Embrace the suck. Yeah, I mean, so everyone everyone's going to bomb at some stage. I, I probably that was probably the only time I've really bombed, but I've certainly had gigs which just didn't work as well as I'd hoped they would, and material maybe they didn't land. One of the one of the tricks for that, and you, you know, you'll know, we run a speaking program called Story to Stage, and I always say to our speakers that the you never change the whole thing. So if you're trying something new and you want to try something, package it in the middle of your talk where working material is at either side of it. Because if I if I present something and I've won you over with material that works, and then I bomb a little bit in the middle, usually I've got enough runway left to kind of pick it up a bit. And actually what I usually say now, when I bring in material, I was like, well, that's material I've tried for the first time. <laughs> I'm throwing that out, <laughs> that didn't land. And then they laugh with you. And then, and then I move on from there. Generally speaking though, it's um, hard to bomb in a presentation. Although you can have, I had recently this experience where it was more of an interactive thing and I had a very, very troublesome audience member. And that's something that I think can happen to everybody. If somebody disagrees with you and how they disagree with you and how you handle it is critically important. Fantastic. So Rich, um, audience members from our podcast want to get in touch with you. What's the, the best avenue to get in touch? I'd love you to pop over to ineedmissinglink.com. Uh, you can have a look at the various things we can help you with, like our speaker program or things like that. If you'd like to, obviously, I'd love to come and speak at your event as well. Uh, you can go to getrich.af. That'll take you to my personal website. And uh, you'll find all, all the details in my books and content there. And please, 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 I'm very accessible. Reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, say to me, you, you know, send me a little message and tell me you met me on Greg's uh, podcast. And I would love to engage with you and chat to you in general. Fantastic. And we'll put all those links in our show notes along with your book and um, all those ways for folks to find you. Rich, and my this YouTube been... channel, which is my, is I think it's the quietest place on the internet. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to like a place just to feel peaceful where nobody else around, come to my YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> the audience of one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rich, it's been awesome having you on the show. We could talk for on and on and on about your background and presentation skills um, what you've shared with us in the audience has been really, really helpful. So thank you for your time. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. I appreciate everybody listening. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. <laughs>